MSW Media. This week, we learn that the investigation of special counsel Robert Mueller will be winding down soon and that the Justice Department is preparing to receive Mueller's report. Attorney General Bill Barr will supposedly transmit a summary of the report, not the full report, to Congress. What can we expect to see in the Mueller report? What will the public be able to see? Will they be able to see the final report? And what will happen after that investigation ends? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say, um, I... You know, it heard some reports and NBC News had reported for a while that the Mueller investigation is be ending, going to be ending soon. But I was very surprised to see that news that suddenly, you know, it, it appeared like it had been confirmed first by CNN, then by The Washington Post that the Justice Department was getting ready to get that report. I'm not buying it. I'm not going to believe it till I see it or I know we're not we're not going to see the whole thing. But still, I, uh, I I'm, oh. a little sus- I'm a little suspect. All right. Well, we'll we will see. I will say it's one thing that I find funny and because I, I pay, you know, I, I try to read all the comments and, and stuff that our listeners leave uh, and questions that they leave. As and there well were as, a lot this week. Oh, my God is insane. And it's just funny to me that people are very skeptical of like Mueller winding down, but they're not skeptical about all sorts of charges potentially being brought by Mueller. In other words, you know, we're skeptical on some things we don't see, but not others. Um, Well, because he hasn't said he's winding down. And that, nor would we expect him to. I, well, he so, would not. No. I mean, so Mueller's not going to say anything. Uh, you know, one thing that I think people have always had a mis uh, a mis uh, characterization of Mueller is they think that he's this guy who's going to, you know, come come out. You know, he's like uh, John Wayne or something. He's going to come out with a badge and all these things. This all this exciting stuff's going to happen. Mueller's like going to be a, a, a typical understated lawman, federal prosecutor type who's going to say very little, to be very cautious, um, very understated. That's what we can expect. I mean, if you, you know, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, we talk a lot about Rod Rosenstein, but a lot of you haven't heard a lot of comments from him because he's a very understated guy, even though he has to go out and give speeches. He's a kind of law enforcement type who's kind of, uh, you know, understated. Mueller is going to be the same way. He's not going to be trying to draw a lot of attention to himself. So I don't I'm not surprised that we're that we didn't hear in advance. Uh, but there are some reasons why, you know, people are skeptical that it's ending and, and maybe it won't. I think for the purposes of the podcast today, I don't want to spend a lot of time debating whether or not it'll happen. Oh, I, I understand completely. Yeah, but I, I want you know, I will have to ask at some point why, why you guys believe that. So. Yeah, I um I think that it's it, you know there's some healthy skepticism out there which is fine, um but you know there, this raises a lot of implications. I think that expectations uh, for him have been sky high for uh, Mr. Mueller. It's and not- that's I think that's the thing is that I, I think people were expecting more indictments or subpoenas. They were expecting perhaps interviews with uh, you know some of the Trump family 
that haven't happened. So I think that's why some people are, 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 are skeptical that it's ending. Well, you know, this happened once before. I mean, there was my former boss, Pat Fitzgerald, was the previous special counsel, and he was appointed to investigate, you know, matters during the George W. Bush administration. And I remember people getting excited about what they called Fitzmiss, that he was going to, uh, that Pat was going to come out with all these charges and so forth. He ended up charging Scooter Libby for obstructing justice and he got a conviction. Uh, and, um, you know, he was later pardoned uh, by President Trump, but it wasn't the grand uh, scheme that I think people thought at that time. Uh, and so, you know, here I think I, I, I have no idea what Mueller is going to do. I don't know, but I would just say that given how, how outlandish and outside people expectations are, um, they should be prepared for not all of their expectations to be met. The news this week was shocking. As we mentioned a moment ago, the investigation of Robert Mueller may finally be coming to an end. Uh, and we have a lot to discuss today. So I am bringing in uh, my friend and frequent guest, uh, Asha Rangappa. She's not only a CNN legal analyst, but she's a former FBI agent who specialized in counterintelligence. She's a professor at Yale University and one of the smartest commentators on all of these topics. Welcome back to the podcast, Asha. Glad to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. So I've got to say, um, there's a lot more to, dis to discuss this week than I thought. I mean, this is usually, uh, th there's so much news that is broken this week that we could have like six different podcasts, right? Totally. <laughs> Just today, right? Robert Kraft has got caught up in his illegal problems, R, R. Kelly. Uh, Michael Cohen apparently has been offering new information, uh, and that's just what not even what I was thinking that Asha and I would be talking about today, which is this huge news that the Mueller investigation is it appears to be coming to an end. Yeah, I mean, when, when that was intimated, I, I can't even tell time anymore. Was it earlier this week? Was it yesterday? You know, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, we were, I, I think many of us were surprised to hear that um, because... It seemed as though there were still many threads that he was following that could not possibly be resolved um, in, you know, in a few days. Well, I have a question, though, and I think a lot of people have been asking me this. Who was intimating this? Where is this idea that it's coming to an end or wrapping up? Well, there, you know, CNN is the, you know, broke that story this week and had various sources. I don't know who they are. I have no special knowledge. Maybe Ash is more like... Uh, an insider at CNN than I am. You know, I'm like a, maybe a second tier guy. I don't know all of their secret sor sources. They also did some like stakeout sort of stuff too. They observed them carrying the boxes out and this and that. But apparently they had some sources at the DOJ who told them uh, that this the report was coming soon. DOJ was preparing for it. And then the Washington Post confirmed it. Is that right, Asha? I think so. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure exactly the the trajectory of the reporting, but that, that sounds right to me. Yeah, I mean, we just look. Ash and I don't make the news. I know okay? you don't. She, 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 Somebody, Betty's giving me a look. Like, uh, yeah, okay. people, just, people just hand it to us, and then we comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I agree with, you know, Asha, you just mentioned a minute ago that there's these threads that, that are left uh, there, and I think that's true. I mean, there there's a fight over a subpoena. Um, obviously, then there was a search warrant that was recently executed at Roger Stone's residence. I doubt that all the information sees has been analyzed thus far. 
Um, you know, there are there's you know what what happens with Mr. Corsi? Is he uh, home free? Uh, we don't know the answer to all those questions. I will just say from my perspective, and I'd be interested in hearing yours, Asha. You know, there are, you know, Mueller's office is a very small part of the Justice Department. There are literally, I think, thousands, right, of lawyers at the Justice Department. And they're they're equipped to handle a lot of this. And it may have been that, you know, uh, Mr. Mueller, partly because there had been this narrative that had developed and political pressure, wanted to wind down as quickly as possible and give away uh, whatever remaining loose ends to compo- to other components of the Justice Department uh, as soon as he could so that this way, you know, the public could find out as early as possible what he did find. Yes, I, th- I think that's right. And, you know, you made an important point that Mueller is just one component. Um, he essentially steps into the shoes of a U.S. attorney, essentially, for specific... Uh, for a specific, you know, scope of investigation. Um, but he does have the power to pass them to the relevant jurisdictions, and those those investigations can continue in those in those jurisdictions. Yeah, I think that one one thing that's developed in over the last uh, you know year or two that I think is unfortunate is there's a narrative that Mueller is conducting an investigation into, quote, collusion, unquote, and then we are going to, Mueller's going to emerge with a 500-page report, and he's going, in in there, there's going to be like a sentence that says there was collusion or there wasn't collusion, Uh, and I don't think any of that is true. In other words, there's a many, multiple different investigations, some of which are under Mueller's umbrella, some of which are not, some of them in the Southern District of New York or the District of Columbia, U.S. Attorney's offices, and so on, Mueller was conducting multiple investigations. One of them is a counterintelligence investigation into links with Russia. And you, Asha, have done a, such an amazing job of, I think, educating all of us on what counterintelligence investigations are. Um, right. And then part of it are these criminal investigations into various uh, specific crimes, none of which is called collusion. Right. You know, the, the, the activities that, you know, to the extent that he is looking at and the, the words that are used in his mandate are coordination and links between the Trump campaign and Russia. Um, you know, when he finds coordination and links, then the question is, A, do, do, those, do the activities that constitute that coordination and links, uh, you know, cross the line into criminal activity? And then, B, does he want, you know, does it... it rise to a chargeable offense, like is there enough evidence to even charge someone, and then see, is, are they willing to m- go public, which is what you have to do in a criminal investigation? Can they actually reveal the evidence that they have in a way that would not compromise national security uh, or reveal methods and sources? So there are, there are kind of multiple layers that go from like looking at collusion to whether or not it actually manifests in a criminal charge. So I have always said that looking at the criminal charges alone are not going to tell you the full story. And I think it's also important to note that Mueller's report is, at least under the regulations, supposed to be the charges that he has decided to pursue or declined to pursue, 
because I think when the regulations were written, they were really contemplating only criminal investigations. I don't think these special counsel regulations imagine that there would be a counterintelligence probe. So it doesn't really make provisions for it. I don't know that it precludes him from, you know, outlining it, but I don't really see where or how he would do that. I think you're you're absolutely right. I, I, you know, what a, I think what a very helpful framework for this whole conversation. So I'm, I think let's start with the last thing you talked about, which is what kind of report can we expect to see? Okay. So I will just say that if I was handed the special counsel regulations and I was a special counsel for some very boring thing that no one cared about, uh, what I would what I would produce to the attorney general might be a five page memo. Uh, it would literally say, I decided to charge Paul Manafort f- for X reason, you know, see, see the indictment of Paul Manafort. I decided not to indict Jerome Corsi for Y and Z reasons. Now, that might be longer, but that might be like three paragraphs. It might be two pages. Maybe it might be 10 pages, um, but it's not going to be 500 pages. Um, and it would just kind of go through all the individuals and potential charges in that fashion. It would be very much an inside baseball kind of document meant to be viewed by another prosecutor, not the public. It would contain information that ordinarily wouldn't be able to be shared to the public. Things like grand jury material and and uh, other types of potentially sensitive or classified information. And it would use a lot of shorthand and it would just be getting to the point about why I did things and why I didn't. And the reason I'm saying this is because I actually wrote a lot of declination memos as a federal prosecutor. And that, you know, usually that was like a two paragraph sort of thing or three paragraph sort of thing. But I I did do longer ones when it was appropriate for a more substantial or important case, but not they wouldn't look anything like what I think the public is expecting. Right. And I think that the one of the problems here is that the, you know, precedent that the public has in mind is Kenneth Starr. And Kenneth Starr produced, what, a 2,700-page report uh, (laughs) to Congress. I mean, who knows? He rambled on from uh, from Whitewater to Monica Lewinsky or or whatever. And here is the background. Kenneth Starr was appointed by Congress under the Independent Counsel Statute. So he was congressionally appointed. He, you know, had the power. He didn't have any bounds as far as I'm aware, on what he could investigate, which is why he was able to just kind of roam and and do whatever. And he had the power to directly provide this report to Congress. And when that statute expired in 1999, there was bipartisan agreement that it should not be renewed. And so that is why, to take its place, the Department of Justice created these special counsel regulations. And one, you know, part of it was because of some of the legal issues that were raised about the independent counsel statute. I mean, it was upheld, but, you know, there were some issues about whether, you know, this was a separation of powers issue of, you know, Congress being able to appoint a prosecutor. But um, the other was to also rein in the powers of somebody conducting this kind of independent investigation. It was recognized that there are going to be times when such an independent investigation is necessary, but how do we create boundaries and buffers so that this person can't 
basically do a witch hunt, ironically enough, um, and also that when he or she is done, that they have to submit their report to an intermediary, effectively, who then looks at it and then decides what to provide to Congress. And so that is why we have the system in place that we do today. It is not like Kenneth Starr, and that is why Mueller doesn't have the power to either produce as robust of, you know, this kind of narrative story that goes on for hundreds of pages and that he can't provide it directly to Congress. Well, and that's a question a lot of our, our listeners have, you know, because they are so eager to see what he has in this report. They're wondering if he can be asked or subpoenaed to testify before Congress. So that he can. And so just and that's an important point. So, by the way, I agree with everything as usual. I agree. I mean, we sometimes, Asha and I have, have had some interesting disagreements at times about like Whitaker and so forth. But usually we agree because mm-hmm. she's she's uh, pretty smart. Uh, so, but what I would say is, as to the point that you just, the question you just had, you know, Ash, I think is completely right that the the regulations don't contemplate Mueller's report going to Congress, and there's a lot of reasons why. But Congress does have other ways to obtain that information, and I think this week Senator Blumenthal said that if the Mueller report is not provided in full to Congress, that he intends to subpoena Mueller. And, you know, I, I actually spoke with, I uh, interviewed uh, Blumen, uh, Senator Blumenthal a couple weeks ago, um, and we talked a lot about he has a transparency bill that he's trying to get uh, passed through Congress that he's co-sponsoring with Senator Grassley, a bipartisan bill. And, you know, th- that that sort of effort, either legislation that's bipartisan, that, that flies through Congress with veto-proof majorities, or a subpoena of Mueller, or uh, or something of, along those lines is what may be necessary for Congress to get the full report because there are um, restrictions in place that would prevent the full um, Mueller report from being transmitted to the public. So there's a uh, something called Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6E, which prevents the disclosure of evidence that's been acquired. Uh, through a grand jury subpoena, so documents that were subpoenaed, uh, testimony that was given before the grand jury, and so forth. So, you know, a lot of that could not be disclosed um, unless there's a workaround, and that might be a very simple way of Congress preventing the administration from using that rule to uh, dramatically scale back the report. So, Renato, I know you're the one interviewing me, but I have a question for you. Um, (laughs) <laughs> Why? What is the policy reason behind not revealing the grand jury information? Like, in other words, if like documents that are subpoenaed, for example, like why why would that be secret? Why is evidence that is acquired when it would other if it were acquired, say, through a search warrant, it would not be subject to that? Right. It's absolutely true. I will just say it's funny. We don't do a lot of why questions in this podcast. <laughs> I, I spend very little time. I do. Yeah, you do. And so do your listeners. Occasionally when Neil Cottle has been in this podcast, he talks about why and why we have the Constitution the way it is. He's very much a much deeper thinker than I am. So I will. Yeah, this I'll, is the Yale Law School question, right? Exactly. Like why? Well, what is yeah. the policy reason? Why? Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ash is a professor at Yale. So there you go. This is a smart person question. Um, OK, I will. I'll give you my very vague
vague understanding, but I will confess to our listeners that I'm not an expert on why our laws the way are the way they are. But these are very hard and fast rules that not only had an impact on me when I was a federal prosecutor, they have an impact on me now, by the way, when I'm on the other side. I often will try to force the government to use a grand jury subpoena instead of another type of way to get a document because I know they can't use it in another context, like a civil context against a client. So it does it does matter uh, a lot in the real world. But what I, there is something there's grand juries are supposed to operate in secret. That's the policy mm-hmm. that we have in this country for various reasons. You know, not only it's it's not really I don't think for the safety of the grand jurors as much as it's it, although that's part of it. But I think it's it's for to ensure that innocent people and their information right. is not right. So the idea is is if you you know that you can it's pretty easy to issue grand jury subpoenas. Uh, when I was a federal prosecutor prosecutor you know i would just send uh, send the text to my secretary she would send me one uh back and i would you know email it out and there you go so you could say you know the, and the, the, you have some judgment that comes there but the standard is so low that federal prosecutors are just fly, you know they're flying out the door uh and the idea is that you don't want all these people's private information that was obtained freely and openly through these grand jury subpoenas to just be distributed to the public willy-nilly so really, it's kind of a check on government power so that they can't kind of use their investigative authority to smear somebody who they may not ultimately be able to charge. Yeah, and that and then it happens a lot. I mean, it's it's often the case that that the government in the course of an investigation um, uncovers embarrassing information about people. And there's also often uh, the case that the government investigate someone and does not have enough evidence to charge beyond a reasonable doubt. And by the way, that is, I, I'll make a, a, a promise slash prediction, which I think I hate when legal analysts do this stuff, but this is such an obvious one that Mueller will not be able to charge everyone who you could imagine he's going to be able to charge. I mean, that's just not how the world works, that there's, you can develop charges against everyone. There's going to be some person that he would have liked to have gotten enough evidence and that he won't. And so part of the question is, you know, if he's writing a report where he explains why he didn't have enough evidence to charge person X or Y or Z, is it right and fair for that person to have that aired out there? Now, that could be a different policy argument for whether it's, you know, if it's obviously, if it's the, let's say the president or a public figure versus somebody who's a private citizen. But the, the, the default in our, in, our, um, in our society and the way it works in our system of, uh, system of justice is that if you can't be charged, the government doesn't say anything about you, although unless you're Hillary right. Clinton. Right. Yeah, and I think I would add there something I alluded to earlier is that some of the evidence that he's obtained may have been obtained through classified or sensitive sources and methods, things like FISAs or Section 702 or, you know, NSA intercepts and revealing the mere revelation of certain kinds of evidence could then compromise, you know, the people could... Reverse engineer. Say Russia could reverse engineer exactly how Mueller got that information. If they got it from a human source that the CIA has in Russia, for example, um, then Putin goes and like kills that person. You know what I'm saying? So right. um, that that could also be a reason. And I think that that idea of protecting innocent people, as I understand it, Renato, is also why the Department of Justice has a policy of not revealing derogatory information about people that they choose not to charge. So that is another 
quite apart from grand jury information, the declinations of charges would be something that he would not that would not ordinarily become public regardless. Um, right. Precisely because you know they did not, they chose not to pursue this in a court of law, and it's it's interesting because that is what James Comey was largely criticized for when he gave that press conference about Hillary Clinton in the summer of 2016. Um, you know, they decided not to charge her, and instead of just quietly saying, we just decided not to charge her, uh, you know, he kind of went out there and was like, well, you know, she was reckless and negligent, and I mean, he kind of editorialized it, uh, and that that kind of cast a pall on her um, in a way that I think people felt was unfair. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, what I would say here is in an ordinary case, there are good reasons for the special counsel's. Um, uh, there may be good reasons why a special counsel's report should not be transmitted to the public in full. Uh, here, I think there are reasons why um, that may be in the best interests of everyone. Um, I will say that federal rule of criminal procedure 6E is not you know, part of the Constitution or anything. It's just something out there that Congress can pass a law and override you know, very easily. And so really in this particular circumstance, um, there can be a political compromise here. And given that uh, the CNN poll is like 87 percent of Americans believe the, enti- the entire Mueller report should go public, uh, given that high, very high public uh, bipartisan uh, majority, you know, you would think that, you know, whether it's the Grassley uh, Blumenthal bill or some sort of more just uh, crass political calculation and deal, you know, will will ultimately result in things going public. But I will say I do disagree. You know, our, our mutual friend, Neil Katyal, who's been on the on on the podcast multiple times, you know, I disagree. You know, he came out and he basically said that the regulations are going to or under the law or the regulations that it's going to become public. And I don't think that I don't agree with that position. I don't think that that's right. I think that there are, the, the Trump administration will have good reasons to say why they can't make the full thing public, which is where they're going right now. While we just want a summary to be out there. But I think that political realities are going to change that. So, I mean, it, I, it sounds like what you're saying or maybe my take on it is that the regulations do seem to leave a lot of discretion in the hands of the attorney general on whether to make it public. And as you said, the attorney general is, is a part of the administration and, and could choose, choose not to do that. There's nothing that is mandated in the regulations that it become public. Unless he overrides a decision by, you know, denies, a, you know, denies Mueller authority to conduct an investigative step. Right. Or so the, the attorney general does have to report to Congress any decisions that Mueller requested that were not approved. Um, and he does have to provide a summary, but there is a lot of discretion in uh, of the final report, but he has a lot of discretion in what to provide. I would say I agree with you, not just that there's political reasons, but I think that, again, to kind of use a you know, law school approach, there are policy reasons where some of these ordinary concerns ought not to apply. And so the first is that what this investigation concerns is not simply the private conduct of the president or his associates, okay? This is, this is not like Kenneth Starr in the sense that it's about, you know, his sexual, 
you know, exploits or, or, or something like that. This is really about a presidential election in which the country participated and whether or not it was influenced or compromised by a foreign power with the aid of particular individuals um, in a campaign. And I think the second is that going a little further on that same piece, but with regard to the president specifically, you know, for a, for a while now, for the last two years, we've kept hearing, you know, the, the Department of Justice can't indict the president. Okay, that's true. That's their policy. Um, but, you know, the, the argument was, you know, that's a matter for Congress to take up. Well, if Congress can't take it up if they don't know what has been discovered in the course of the investigation. In other words, there, then what that effectively leaves is nobody to hold the president accountable for anything that happened. And so what it, it would effectively result in immunity for the president for any kind of conduct, not just criminal conduct, but conduct that might compromise national security or be impeachable offenses, even if they didn't constitute a crime. Um, and that, you know, it's, just, it's essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card for the presidency, which I don't think is consistent with what our framers intended or what we want in a transparent, accountable republic. Yeah, I agree with I agree with everything you said. I, there's no question about that. And I think the analysis would be different for, for example, somebody who's minor financial crime, let's say an associate of Manafort's or something was caught, you know, was sweeped into this uh, investigation. Uh, but I, I agree as to the president, particularly, that's no, undoubtedly the case. And I think there's a strong public interest in this particular report being out to the public. I just think that the law is such that, you know, Mr. Barr is, I think, was legitimately going to be able to say, well, you know, uh, some of the information I can't disclose by law or by, because of federal rule of criminal procedure 6E. And, you know, if you want to change the law, that's fine. But until you do, I have to comply with the law. And I think when he said when he was during his confirmation hearings that I'll do the so and consistent with all laws and regulations or something like that. I don't remember how he put it. That's what he was alluding to. He'll give what he can. And, you know, the, the question is, will there be enough uh, will in Congress to obtain the rest of the information? My prediction is that it will. But I think the people who are promising you that that's going to be the case, um, that's going a little too far. So with regard to Mueller being subpoenaed to testify, I don't know that it's entirely clear whether he would be free to speak about everything that he's found. That would be an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, that it's not it's not 100 percent clear to me. Um, He might be able to speak as to the. What you know about in, in without revealing, the, for example, the specific contents of something that was uh, before the grand jury might be able to, particularly in a private session uh, with Congress, be able to talk in at least some level. I mean, he certainly could. I think if if Barr didn't go to the very outer limits of what he could reveal, uh, I think Mueller could do that. For example. You know, the the fact that, you know, for example, the contents of particular emails or text messages that that are obtained via subpoena, um, although most of those would come from an indictment. But let's say they were obtained via subpoena or excuse me, from a, obtained via search warrant. But even if they were obtained via subpoena, he couldn't uh, put, you know, reveal the contents of the emails. But he could say we obtained emails from this individual 
And based upon that, I, I have concluded X, Y, or Z, or there are emails that caused us to conclude ABC, which even though it doesn't have all of the details, it gets, uh, it gets to the public the substance, the general substance of it, and then the Congress can decide if it really wants to get its hands on whatever the underlying information is that Mueller has. Um, right. So w one thing that you, we talked about a moment ago, when you first, I think in your very helpful <clears throat> sort of high-level summary that you kind of gave at the beginning, Asha, of this investigation, you know, you you talked about how you know he, you mentioned that, that he's he's looking at links and coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia, and then you said you know in crimes that you could charge arising from that, and I think that's one thing that I just I I one point I want to make is that the crimes that arise from that will not necessarily be a conspiracy between Russians and Americans to commit some specific crime like computer hacking, you know, for example. Michael Cohen's lie to Congress arose from that same factual scenario. And, you know, if I was a federal prosecutor looking at this and I had various charges to bring, leaving aside whatever the public may be looking for, if I, if I was handling this like an ordinary case, I would all, all, usually be looking for the narrowest possible charges that would get me to a guilty verdict. So then I could throw everything else in at sentencing and prove that up. Uh, at 51%, a preponderance of the evidence is opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember is precisely because we are dealing with Russia and a Russian intelligence operation, this is not going to be like a conspiracy to rob a bank, okay? or like the Jesse Smollett, you know, yeah. thing where, you know, they all get together and, you know, a Russian intelligence officer says, okay, here's what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to help, you know, interfere in the election and this is how we're going to do it. And here's your role and here's your role. And here's and a check for $50,000. Yep. Exactly. And here I'm signing it, Vladimir Putin, um, number, you know, 951. It, that it does not, that's not how intelligence services work. Um, there's not going to be a room where it all happened that, you know, it's going to get blown wide open. Intelligence services work covertly, um, and they work by manipulation and coercion with a wink and a nod. They, they maneuver people into positions where they are they have gone so far in certain kinds of activity or behavior that they know can be used against them that then they you know sort of agree to do things um you know it's it's not spoken out loud so the kind of i mean you've probably charged conspiracies renato and i just don't think that that is what this would look like and it's what mm -hmm. complicates it for Mueller in terms of, you know, uh, actually transitioning from the counterintelligence side to the criminal side. That, that's exactly right, Asha. Abs like, you are 100% on target there. I, I have to say, a counter on the counterintelligence side, there's, I, there's a lot of things here that, you know, to use your term, you, Asha has coined the term red flaggy. And I think uh, there's a lot of red flaggy <laughs> stuff here. And, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I also would look for red flaggy things, too. But what especially when you're trying to prove conspiracies or white, uh, or white collar crimes or there's all these intent requirements, 
you know, you're really trying to deconstruct, like, and prove what is in somebody's mind. What is their state of mind? What have they done? Have they agreed to do something? Have they, do they intend to do something? Do they, are they knowingly doing something based upon various random documents and emails and whatever? And the sort of cases that you charge are cases where idiots in emails say things that they probably shouldn't say. And occasionally that happens. You know, Roger Stone, and for example, we saw here, you know, you know, probably said things in emails that would be be bettered off for himself if he hadn't said. But even there, there's no conspiracy charge because it's hard to prove sometimes an agreement. But, you know, that's a lot of times what it takes. It's very hard when you don't have one of the members of a conspiracy testifying to the verbal conversations or written communications that ex- kind of explicitly lay out the, the conspiracy to prove a conspiracy merely through like inferences from all sorts of circumstantial evidence. Some of your listeners want to know, uh, because so many of the indictments have been fairly fruitful, right? Whether you've got Flynn, Manafort, Stone, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Do you have a sense of what that indicates as far as perhaps where, you know, if, if it is in fact the fact he's handing off the investigation, that this will be a report to where he is, and then you both have described how this might be turned over to other agencies? What are your thoughts? Well, I've got to say, I, I do think there are a lot of other investigations that are going on that are super important. I think the Southern District of New York investigation is very important. And I've said for a while that if I represented Trump, I'd be far more concerned about that investigation than the Mueller investigation at this point. But I do not believe, and I'm sure there's, I think, I, as a matter of fact, I've already seen people out there um, who are saying this, uh, but, you know, that I do not believe that the, the, like, for example, the Roger Stone case is being handed off to the District of Columbia, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. I don't think that this means that there's all these indictments that are planned that we are they already have the evidence for and they're ready to go and they just Mueller decided to just let the District of Columbia U.S. Attorney's Office do it. What I think is right now they don't have sufficient evidence for any further indictments. There may after whatever comes out at the end here and then you know maybe there will be some additional evidence that will pop up but as to a lot of this stuff it, that may not be the case in other words unless they've handed it off um and there's sort of an ongoing case like there is with roger stone uh i think that if i represented somebody that Mueller was looking at i would breathe a lot uh i breathe i would kind of uh, breathe you know sleep better at night um and i i think well yeah mm-hmm. yeah so and i i think that that it's probably the right conclusion, except uh, I don't know if you saw the op-ed I wrote for the Washington Post today, Ooh, that there I is still, not. yeah, there is still yet another chapter, potentially, which is, you know, right now we are all talking about uh, federal prosecutions, and we know that very early on, Mueller was sharing information with then-Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. And one of the things that and we also know that he was researching, he, he hired a pardon expert to look at the effect of presidential pardons, the limits of presidential pardons, what the president could do. And I think that what we've seen is, um, you know, we, we've seen that Mueller went as far as Roger Stone, who's pretty close in the circle. I mean, he's, uh, you know, with Roger Stone, 
that makes was he the sixth or seventh person in the campaign that was mm-hmm. indicted? Um, <clears throat> but you know he he didn't touch uh, Jared Kushner or Don Jr. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily off the table that the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office could say charge them with perjury for lying in front of Congress or something like that. But let's say Mueller is gaming this out and says, you know, once I start getting to his children or his son-in-law, the, you know, the, the potential for a pardon goes up very high. We already know he was dangling pardons for Manafort and um, – somebody else i forget mm-hmm. who it is um and you know what 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 happens then because then they are essentially off the hook you know state prosecutions can then commence um and here's a complication is that well okay let me rewind a second um states can actually under our current legal doctrine charge people for the same conduct the same set of facts as the federal government and people know that there is something called the double jeopardy clause in the u.s constitution which prevents people from being tried twice for the same crime so why doesn't the state charging somebody for the same crime as the federal government violate this clause well the reason is that in 1959 the supreme court held that the state's and the federal government are separate sovereigns. They represent different people. They vindicate different interests. So they can actually charge someone for the same crime um, because they are effectively two different entities. This is called the dual sovereignty doctrine. The problem arises because many states, in order to protect people, have passed laws that say if the federal government charges you, then the state cannot charge you. And many of these states, like New York, don't make any kind of exception in the case of a presidential pardon. So somebody's charged with a federal crime, uh, say like Paul Manafort, he gets pardoned. Let's say he got pardoned tomorrow. Um, New York State could not charge Manafort, even if he committed crimes that arose from this, like you know, the same kind of money laundering activities, which could be violations of state law in New York. So I think that there is a possibility that in choosing not to touch certain people at all, he has actually left the playing field wide open for states to now bring charges unencumbered. So and oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I just think that that is something that we need to watch for. And today Bloomberg reported that the New York attorney general has, in fact, uh, put together a case for Paul Manafort. Um, You know, they can charge people for crimes that are for different kinds of conduct. And it may explain why Mueller didn't charge Paul Manafort with certain crimes in order to leave the avenue open there as well. Yeah. So that's I mean, that's a very interesting point. I mean, one thing that I I do believe is that, you know, after Mueller wraps up, you know, people are going to there's a lot of folks out there, the typical people on the street who ask me, OK, what's going to happen or whatever. 
they're going to wake up and they're going to be like, okay, finally, when I turn on CNN, I'm going to be able to hear about something else. And they're still going to see all the same stories about Trump's legal problems and all these other people because there's <laughs> all these investigations and things going on anyway. So whether it's the Southern District of New York or the New York Attorney General, I think these state cases, I agree that there's going to be some state follow-on cases. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's going to continue. I would say that from my perspective, I am a bit bearish on uh, state AGs uh, and local state prosecutors bringing these kind of complicated cases because they don't usually do that, but they can. And I think there's a lot of motivation here. What I would say is there's certain there are certain crimes for which that's not going to happen. In other words, distinctly federal crimes, lying to Congress, uh, lying in your disclosure forms, uh, that's distinctly federal. So if uh, Manafort, excuse me, if Mueller decides that he's not a- able to have sufficient evidence to charge Kushner for, you know, leaving things off of his disclosure form, then um, I think you're not going to see a state charge on that for, for obvious reasons. That's 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 lying to a, it's a federal crime, not a state crime. But I think there's a lot of things that could be charged both ways. Um, and we'll have to see. I'm, I'd be skeptical if there's a situation where they're like Mueller, you know, charges Stone with, you know, whatever he's charged him with, you know, lying uh, to Congress, that you're going to have some state prosecutor uh, decide to charge uh, Stone with some grand conspiracy with WikiLeaks or something. But I don't I don't think that happened. But I could see there being like different avenues of liability that Mueller didn't explore for whatever reason that are that are maybe easier to prove under state law. And in New York, particularly, there are some um, there are some laws that are easier to prove, easier to build charges on than there are under under federal law. And if there's going to be a place where I would see state prosecutions, it would be New York. And as you mentioned, uh, there was just this breaking news today, which very timely for your op ed uh, regarding the Manafort um, charges. Yeah. And the importance there is, you know, for your listeners that the president does not have the power to pardon crimes under state law. Crimes under state law can only be pardoned by the governor of that state. So if, for example, the state of New York decided to charge Jared Kushner for financial crimes, uh, there is really not, there is absolutely nothing that the president could do. And we already know that the New York Attorney General has investigated the Trump Foundation. Now, this was a civil suit. Uh, they uh, filed a lawsuit against the Trump Foundation, which included all the Trump children and Trump himself. Uh, that foundation was required to dissolve in December. But they did bring in, you know, um, other experts, the IRS, for example. So, you know, so they're, they're, we don't know whether there's federal charges that could come out of the Southern District of New York, but that also could lead to violations of state tax and financial law. So, you know, I think that's something that the president should worry about, um, quite frankly. I, the, the, from Schneiderman to his successor, the former acting attorney general, Barbara Underwood, to the current attorney general, Letitia James, who actively campaigned mm-hmm. on, you know, yep. I'm going after the Trump organization, um, that really could go quite past the red lines that Trump has laid out, and there would he would have no control over it. And I think, I mean, this would be a very bold step 
But I think in theory, a state could charge Trump with a crime. Oh, I think that, yeah, I, I don't doubt that if Miss James thought that she had sufficient evidence to charge Trump that she um, would do so. I mean, I think there's no question about that, uh, given her the way that she campaigned. So, you know, the que- the question is whether there's enough there. And I will say the reason that I've always been very, um, uh, very, uh, I, I would say very bearish on the, uh, or, or bullish, what is it, bullish on the uh, Southern District of New York investigation in terms of thinking that that will bear a lot of fruit is that they're so far along, they charge Cohen, Cohen serving time for a campaign finance violation that Trump is already implicated in, that it's not hard to see a pe- Trump and people very close to Trump getting caught up in that. Uh, and you already have people who are executive two, for example, named in the in the charging documents who appear to be involved in those payments. So, you know, that reaches up very high in the Trump organization. And, and that's so, so far along that you actually have seen a charging document. So we know they've, they've got uh, they've got a lot of evidence there. Yeah. How how much control do you think uh, Attorney General Barr has over the Southern District moving forward? That's one of the questions that a, a listener said. You guys have covered so much ground, I haven't been able to keep up with getting some of these questions out. So you guys have really, I think, addressed a lot of the questions. But what do you think, Renata? Well, what I would say is an ordinarily that the uh, Attorney General would not um, be communicating on a regular basis about the typical investigations that the Southern District is uh, engaged in, but uh, about investigations that would involve that would have significant, you know, of a be of significant public concern that the you know w- that there would be communication between main justice, like the you know the attorney general, deputy attorney general, and the Southern District of New York. I know, for example, when uh, Governor Bogoyevich was indicted. Uh, while I was a federal prosecutor, that there was certainly communication there. It wasn't like it was a shock to the White House or to the justice, to, you know, to the main justice that this was going to happen. Um, here it's a little bit more sensitive, though, uh, given the subject matter. Um, and I think that, you know, certainly if Mr. Barr, um, you know, was not, uh, you know, operating in a fully ethical way, it would certainly be possible for him to, to share information with Trump. And of course, there are serious, qu- <coughs> excuse me, serious questions about the conversations that, that Trump and Whitaker had, uh, you know, in which it appears or based on reports that Trump was pressuring Whitaker to take control of that investigation. Right. So, so Asha, we, I, before we wrap up, uh, I want to know sort of what you think that people with the ne- this next week or two is going to be crazy. There's this investigation, you know, maybe coming to a close. What do you think people should be looking for? What what are people, uh, what, what you know, what do people, what should people know, and what should they be paying attention to? Oh my gosh, um, <laughs> you know, I think that. I, I just think that this podcast and, and what we've covered is really important, that people need to temper their expectations on what, you know, the Mueller report, quote-unquote, is going to reveal. Um, and that, you know, it may not necessarily blow the lid wide open because of all the reasons that we've already covered. Um, as you mentioned, also, I think that, we have to wait and see what the Southern District or other U.S. Attorney's offices might proceed with. Um, yeah, and I and then and then of course the states. Uh, you know, 
Will will Trump pardon Manafort? Uh, I mean, he's the sentencing memo from Mueller is, is due to come out. Is that right? It is. It's coming out very soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can say a little bit more about what what sentencing memos will cover, but you know, one way that Mueller could potentially lay out a lot of information, as he's already done in his indictments and other sentencing memos, is to use that as a vehicle to outline what he's found about collusion. Um, Paul Manafort is is sort of a linchpin in this whole thing. Um, We know that Manafort was working on behalf of Russian interests when he was uh, helping uh, the pro-Russian Ukrainian uh, president in his campaigns, um, and we know that he was deeply in debt to a Russian oligarch and came and showed up at the Trump campaign's doorstep willing to work for free. We know that he was in constant communication with Konstantin Kalimnik, which is, who is also a uh, Russian intelligence officer or affiliated with Russian intelligence um, and was trying to tamper with witnesses and that he was trying to pass polling data to him. So, you know, that's just what we already know in public. So if he fleshes that out um, as, you know, uh, sorry, as Manafort being sort of a fulcrum in this whole collusion, I mean, it could spell out some information, but I think it really depends on what he's willing to reveal. Yeah, I um, I will say that I think that will I agree with you, Asha, that that sentencing memorandum, which is uh, full of uh, is going to be full of information. A sentencing memorandum is usually very extensive. It contain as much information as the prosecutors can uh, give about the defendant because the, the judge is obligated under the law to look at everything about the defendant uh, and the defendant's conduct at sentencing, not even not be far beyond what has been charged. Uh, which is one reason why I said that the prosecutors are more focused on getting a conviction than the broadest possible conviction. Uh, but I agree with you, too, also with tempering expectations. You know, remember that, you know, Trump has been trying to frame this as the whole investigation is no collusion, no collusion on his end. The, 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 this investigation was never about collusion, and it shouldn't be the response on, our, on the other side has been, yes, collusion. Yes, there will be. Yes, it'll be proven. Collusion isn't a crime uh, under the federal code, and... Uh, I think, as Asha said, and I think this is a great way of the, her, I think her, your analysis, Asha, is the way, the right way of thinking about it is just to temper our expectations, remember all these other things that are going to be going on in the weeks to come. Uh, I think, Absolutely. So thank you so much, Asha. I, it's been, it, you're always so interesting and you have so many thoughts. You've been a real pleasure to have on. Thank you so much. Thank you. I love being on your podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 